Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. You can find the text in the Black Pew Bibles on page 16. This is Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. Please stand as we honor God with his word. Genesis 18, 9 through 15. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent, door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the living God. Please be seated. The tendency when it comes to the study of the scriptures is to focus our, our thoughts on the humans that are in those biblical stories. Often it appears that the narratives are about how they're either, they either please God or they displeased God. So we look at what the people did or didn't do, and that becomes the focus of our study. The hero or the villain however, in the story is not the focus. For instance, we talk about David versus Goliath, or Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Esther headlines our discussions about her book because of what she does, or Daniel with all the many things that he did. And Job, what do we talk about with the book of Job? His suffering, his pain, the things that he went through. None of those are accurate portrayals of what the Bible teaches. It's not David versus Goliath. It's God against the Philistine army. Daniel does not save himself in the fiery furnace, or in the lion's den. It is God who saves Daniel in the lion's den. It is not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who do anything to protect themselves from the fire when they're thrown into the fiery furnace. It is God who protects them and keeps them. 
God closes the lion's mouth. God makes the fire not destroy those men. And God is the one behind all that Esther and all that Job do. Somehow, when we read the scriptures, we forget that this book is not about you, it's not about me. It is about God. God in all of his glory, all of his wonder. And what is true of the study of the Bible is also true about the Christian life. Baptism is not about the individuals who just walked into the waters of of the baptistry. It is not about them. It is about the miracle of a God who awakened faith within them. A God who, who adopts them into his family. A God who brings forth faith within that causes them through that faith to believe and to receive a new life. We stand in awe today of the willingness of the God who created this world that we rebelled against, who draws us out of that rebellion, brings us into a relationship with him, opening our spiritual eyes and stopping our spiritually deaf ears so that we can see his glory and we can hear his truth and we have life. He takes the emptiness of our life and he fills it with his eternal family. It is a story about God, how great he is. And so when we look at this passage here in Genesis 18, let's not make Sarah's failure, her, her doubts and her fears, let's not make those the center of the focus today. We could. She had doubts and she had fear. And we could focus on those things and we could talk about how to handle your fear or how to handle your doubts. But the Bible makes it very clear that it is God who handles our fear and that God who deals with our doubts. So let's turn our eyes heavenward to see the glorious truth about God's character and God's grace in the face of our human failures and our doubts. So our theme from this passage this morning reminds us that faith overcomes doubts and fears when the grandeur and the glory of God grips your hearts. You see, it's not what you do or I do that overcomes fear and doubt. It's when we see God. When our eyes are open to see His character, His nature, His grace, that all of a sudden, the fears and the doubts begin to fade away. Last week, for those who were with us in our study through the book of Genesis, we saw three angels that came to Abraham and Sarah. They were messengers from God. And they arrived at Abraham's tent, and and they sat down to this wonderful feast that was prepared by Sarah and by Abraham's servants and by Abraham himself. And as far as Abraham and his family knew, 
These are just three strangers, three men who happened to be walking by the oasis where they were living. And they invited them in for a meal. But Genesis 18, as it begins with that story, that appears to be just three regular individuals stopping in, is about to make a change. In verse 9, we read, They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Faith triumphs in light of God's omniscience. Verse 9 is not a question that God is asking because he doesn't know the answer. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. That you would expect at first that this is going to be sort of a, a normal interaction. You know, we want to thank your wife for having prepared this wonderful meal, that this is, this is a great thing that she has done. But these men are strangers. How do they know Sarah's name? The word omniscience, that word comes from two words. Omni, which means all, and science, which means knowledge. And so the word omniscience means that God is all-knowing, that God knows everything. So when these angels ask this question, it's not because God doesn't know the answer. It's very similar to what we saw when we were studying back in chapter 3. And back in chapter 3, God comes to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They have rebelled against God. They have disobeyed God's command not to eat of the fruit. And and so they've eaten of that fruit, and, and God comes to them. And it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? As if God didn't know where they were. Certainly God knew where they were. These questions are simply a backdrop for how the humans are going to respond. How are they going to respond to an interaction with God himself? So notice that the Lord is the one who knows our names. We ask again, how did these men know what Sarah's name was? And the answer is that God told those angels what her name was. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, if they were strangers, if they were just passing by, they, they should have asked a question like, well, what is your wife's name? So we can thank her. Or, where is your wife? But instead, they call her Sarah. Identifying her as Abraham's wife is also a significant part of this. Why? Because Abraham has a habit that we have seen so far that when a stranger is going to interact with his wife, he tells him that it's his sister. God doesn't give him a chance to do that. God 
calls her Sarah and calls her his wife. Sarah was formerly called Sarai until the last chapter that we just read, chapter 17. And so if these strangers had passed through the community and asked about Abraham, they probably would have heard that it was Abram and Sarai. But instead, they call her the name that God had just given her. They call her Sarah. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this happen either, is it? Back in chapter 16, Hagar is off on the road, running away from Abraham and and Sarah. And she meets a stranger on the road, and that stranger interacts with her as well. And says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The fact that he called her Hagar already identifies the fact that he knows where she came from and where she's going. You see, God knew them intimately, and God knows you intimately. God knows your name, and God knows everything about you just as much as he knew Sarah and Hagar and Abraham. And he calls you by name. He calls you to come into a relationship, asking you to come to him, asking you to trust in him, to believe the truth concerning him. God moves in you, and he's calling you today to come to him. Will you listen? But notice that the Lord is not only one who knows our names, but he also knows our needs. He knows our needs. For many years, Sarah has wanted a child. She had even tried to manipulate things so that she could have a child through Hagar, an event that, of course, backfired on her. But as that little scenario we saw during the offering tells us, she had given up. That dream was gone. And then verse 10 happens. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. You know, when a child climbs up on Santa's lap, Santa asks the child, what's your name? And then, well, what do you want for Christmas? Santa is not omniscient, but God is. God doesn't have to ask, because God knows every thought. He knows every dream, every hope, every need you have. Jesus addressed that in Matthew 6 when he said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. So whether you're a Christian or not, the fact is that God knows who you are. 
and he knows everything about you. He knows whether you've been good or bad. He knows your needs. He knows your wants. He knows what is beneficial for you and what is not beneficial. He knows what good gifts he has planned for you. David wrote in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As Christians, we know that God knows everything about us as well, and that God will provide our needs if we trust in him. But even for those who don't know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, the reality is that God knows your greatest need, and that greatest need is that you know him. That you come to trust in him and have a relationship with him. He's calling you by name, and he wants to give you what you need. The text has revealed to us then God's omniscience, that he knows everything about us. And yet we also need to realize that faith triumphs in light of God's omnipotence. Again, the word omni, all, and potent means powerful. God is all-powerful. And so as we've been walking our way through in our study of Genesis, we have been awed because we saw God create ex nihilo. We saw God create out of nothing the whole of the universe. And we were terrorized as we studied the book, the, the uh, chapters on Noah and the flood, and we realized that God could destroy this whole planet in a moment if he wanted to. And he certainly did in 40 days. Yet does God's omnipotent affect your life, your daily life, the, the events that are, that are happening today and tomorrow and the next day in your life? Verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Does God only do massive things? Or does he use his power to help us in our everyday needs? Is he only like the Hulk who can only smash? Or can he work the small details of your life? Notice the Lord is the one who works extraordinarily in your life and mine. The fact that you and I are standing here today and we have air to breathe that is perfectly balanced for our system is a miracle. It's an incredible miracle. Read the, 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 the science on it. If this was... You know, part of the air was you know, two tenths more, and this was five tenths less. You and I would be poisoned. We would die. Perfectly balanced for life on this planet, for the trees that need the carbon dioxide, you and me that need the oxygen, and all the rest. That's a miracle. Every cell in your body is an absolute miracle. The incredible way that those cells work, or when they don't work, right, Judith? Right? We end up with a cell that becomes malignant 
Every cell is a masterpiece, an incredible way in which God has formed that cell in your body to function as it does. However, we have become so accustomed to these natural aspects of life that we just call it nature. That's just nature that does that. And so at times, God has to work in an extraordinary way. A way that that goes beyond what we see as nature or normal. And that's what he does in verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, Sarah had gone through menopause. Anyone with an understanding of biology knows that a menopausal woman is not going to have a baby. She has no eggs left. She cannot bear children because there's nothing in her body for the sperm to fertilize. No wonder Sarah laughed. To say that she could become pregnant is as silly as saying that a virgin could have a child. Ridiculous, isn't it? God's answer is found in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That word translated hard here from the Hebrew means something that is too wonderful to contemplate, something that is spectacular, something that is extraordinary. It is the impossible. And yet a year later, this woman who years before had gone through menopause is pregnant with a child. And 2,000 years later, a virgin gives birth to a son. Nothing is too wonderful for God. Notice that the Lord also is the one who works exactly, perfectly. Evolution tells us that creation happened by accident. That it's impossible to actually know when things happened in the past or when they're going to happen in the future. I mean, when would the big one hit California? Who knows? It may come, it may not. It may be next week, it might be next year, it might be a hundred years from now. Will climate change so radically change the weather patterns of the earth that in 50 years, New York City will be underneath water? Or do we have another few thousand years? No one knows except God. God knows. Verse 14 reveals that God has the power to work perfectly at the appointed time. I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. At the appointed time, God worked. For 24 years, God had told Sarah that she was going to have a child. That a son was coming. Now God specifies just when that conception is going to take place and when that baby is going to be born. Psalm 139 informs us that it is God 
that causes conception and birth, that he is in charge of those things. He is the one who designs the baby in the womb, molding it, creating it, which is one of the reasons why in this month we pray for the Pregnancy Care Center and why Christians are opposed to abortion. Because every fertilized egg is a miracle that was wrought by God. Whether the people involved were good or whether they were bad and evil. As Joseph put it, what you meant for evil, God means for good. In Sarah's case, God created an egg, restored her ovulation, made her fertile after a lifetime of infertility. God worked perfectly, exactly in her life to create that wonderful work of the child. God works in our lives in extraordinary ways as well. Too often we simply brush it off as nature. But as Judith recognized, it is God who is in a room with her as she's undergoing surgery. Which brings us to our final characteristic of God. For faith triumphs in light of God's omnipresence. Omnipresence. Omniscience, God knows everything. Omnipotence, God has all power. And omnipresence, God is present everywhere. You know, you could have someone who, like Charles Xavier of the X-Men, who, who knows where every human being is all over the planet. And you could have someone so powerful that they might be able to control even planets. But if they can't be everywhere at once, then they are limited in what they can do. Therefore, they could be beaten or they could be destroyed. God, however, is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Present everywhere at once, and we get a sneak preview of that in verse 10. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him, behind this messenger who is talking. He is facing Abraham. The tent is behind. But he knows all that's happening in that tent. He knows exactly what is going on there because God is present and communicating it to him. So everything that Sarah does, every face she makes, her silent laughter, all of those are seen and known by the one who sees all. Notice that the Lord then is the one who sees our doubts as he did hers. We're often afraid of God because we're afraid that he sees our sins, which is one of the reasons why so many people are atheists and agnostics. They think that if they can ignore God, then God will ignore them. They prefer to believe that what they do, what they say, what they think is their own. It's private. And surely Sarah felt that way as she hid in her tent we see it in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
Whether she muttered that under her breath or whether it was just thoughts that were passing through her mind, God was there. God knew what was going on. As Psalm 44 declares, he knows the secrets of our heart. Now that can be very frightening or it can be very comforting. It can be very frightening if we're God's enemy. You can't get away with anything. One day Jesus said that whatever you've done in secret is going to be shouted from the rooftop. That could be quite frightening. The king of Syria was at war with the king of Israel, but his armies could never find the smaller army of Israel. Every time they thought that they had them trapped, they disappeared. So the king of Syria brought together his generals, and he said, who of you is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's telling him what we're going to do? Who's the leaker? Who's the spy in the camp? The officers answered, there is no spy in the camp. There is no leaker. Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. But on the other hand, if God is on your side, even if you've done wrong, Because he knows about it, he can fix it. He can correct it. But notice also the Lord is the one who sees our denials. He sees our doubts, our fears, and our denials. Why do you and I think that we can hide anything that we say or do from God? That's impossible. We sin, but then we pretend it never happened. We ignore it. Maybe if we ignore it, God will ignore it too. But God never goes senile. (laughs) He doesn't forget anything. Fear comes from a lack of faith. And so in verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No, you did laugh. I was there. God was present. He knew what was going on. How many times have you broken something or uh, done something wrong that you've denied maybe to your parents or to your spouse or, or someone? When I was in fourth grade, I think it was fourth grade or somewhere around there. My brothers and I had gone to our neighbors and, and uh, we built a bonfire in their back lawn. All right? We just got all kinds of stuff and put it together and we're building this great bonfire and the parents came home. They had a long driveway, so one of the kids yells, Mom and Dad are coming! We're not supposed to have this fire burning in their lawn, I'm sure. So what did we do? We tried to put the fire out. And so I jumped into the middle of the fire and started stomping on it, except there was tar paper in that fire. And all the way up my legs, both legs, tar, burning tar on my legs. So we go home. And my mom is standing there as we all kind of slink in the door. And she lines us up. Says, what did you guys do? I'm ready to pass out. 
I'm serious. I am in like horrendous pain. Nothing. Wouldn't do nothing. <laughs> you know. Oh, my mom was too smart. But God is a lot smarter. We may think that our mothers have eyes in the back of their heads. They don't. But God does. Nothing is hidden from him. The writer of Hebrews states, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Yes, one day we will stand before God and we will give account for what we have done in this body, whether good or evil. The question is, are you going to be going before your Father in heaven who because of what Jesus Christ has done has forgiven your sins? Or are you going to be going before him as a judge to receive judgment for what you have done? Baptism is not a way to be saved. Baptism is a way to declare what must happen in your life if you are going to be able to stand before God and not be afraid. You must die and rise again. You must trust that when Jesus died, he died for you. But if you don't think that you've sinned enough, then you're not going to believe that. You're not going to believe that, you, that God would ever kick you out. And then one day you'll stand before God and he will say to you, depart from me. You worker of iniquity, I never knew you. That's a scary thought. But today he offers you the opportunity to hear his voice calling you and say, come. Come to me and I will give you life. I will forgive your sin and I will change your heart and give you a heart that loves the things of God and loves the life that God has given to you. And so in conclusion, has your faith been defeated by fears and questions like Sarah's? Are you willing to recognize the glory of God as he reveals himself to you today? Or are you going to say with Sarah, I didn't do it. Because he will say to you, no, you did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us, cleanse us, open our hearts to you, that you might have, by your power, by your wisdom, by your knowledge, that transforming life that you might give to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Since time has flown, we're not going to close with a, a closing song, so I just ask you to stand.